So we continue on in our study of the book of Mark. We pick up again in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. We'll go ahead and read these verses to just get us started here. Mark 8, beginning in verse 27. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked the disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. This morning I entitled this an important test, and we'll get there in just a, a moment. But I wanted to, to read some information that I had found. <clears throat> the question of who is Jesus is still out there today. Uh, and one uh, evangelical site that I found did a little bit of a, a survey or a summary here. And they, put, and they kind of put this description out. All the world's major religions feel compelled to account for Jesus in one way or another. Jews believed Jesus was Mary's son and was a teacher, had many disciples, was rejected, performed miracles, claimed to be the Messiah, and was crucified on the cross. They acknowledge his followers reported Jesus was raised from the dead. Muslims believe Jesus was born of a virgin, is to be revered and respected, was a prophet, a wise teacher who worked miracles, ascended to heaven, and will come again. The Ahmadiyya Muslims, a kind of a reformed sect, believe Jesus may have been born of a virgin, was a prophet and wise teacher, worked miracles, and was crucified on a cross. Another Eastern religion, the Baha'i, believed Jesus came from God, was a wise teacher who had a divine and human nature. I should point here that's nothing out of the norm for this religion because the founder of this religion taught there were many messengers from God, him being the last one, of course, and they all had divine and human natures. So their claim with Jesus on this is nothing special. Uh, but they believe worked miracles and was crucified and resurrected as an atonement for humanity, which I thought was interesting to still be included. Hindus believe Jesus was a holy, holy man, a wise teacher, and is a god, one to be included in their pantheon. Buddhists believe Jesus was an enlightened man and a wise teacher. New Age philosophy, their believers maintain Jesus was a wise and moral teacher. So the question of who is Jesus is very important. Most of the world's major religions are compelled to answer this question. They all address him and have to answer this question. And for the most part, they're very similar. He was a good teacher. He was a wise teacher. There might be some divinity there. And he died on the cross. So, we, so there's some commonality. 
but none of them hit the right note. So as we continue along in our study of Mark, and we continue along here in this passage, along with Jesus's travels with his disciples, we pick up right where we did, where we left off last week, following their leaving Galilee for the eastern side of the lake again, and the healing of the blind man near Bethsaida. Now, on their travels, they are moving towards Caesarea Philippi, and on their travels up in that area, Jesus gives the disciples a small but important test concerning this important topic, his identity, his person. We see this, we pick up in in verse 27. Now, Jesus and his disciples went out to the town's accessory of Philippi, and on the road he asked the disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. So in verses 27 and 28, we have a simple question. A simple question. Think of it this way. If this, is a, if this were a test or a, you walk into class and you have a pop quiz, this is the easy question at the right off to make you feel confident. Okay. They could answer this question. So we have a simple question to start off with. Now, they left the area of Bethsaida uh, on the eastern side of the uh, Jordan River on the northern shore of the Lake of Galilee and are moving towards Caesarea Philippi. This city is near Mount Hermon and right off of one of the four sources of the Jordan River, one of the four streams or creeks that flow into what forms the Jordan River is next near this city. This city is fairly old, um, but at this point was recently enlarged by Herod Antipas's half-brother, Philip the Tetrarch, and he renamed the city Caesarea in honor of the Roman emperor. But to further distinguish it, because there are two Caesareas, there is Caesarea Philippi, and there is Caesarea Maritima on the coast of the Mediterranean. To further distinguish this Caesarea from the other one, he attached his name to it, Caesarea Philippi. More literally, Philip's, Philip's Caesarea is how that would be, how we would word that. This was a Roman city dominated by paganism, but this was not Jesus's target. He wasn't going to, to the city. He wasn't going to minister there. He stayed in the cluster of villages and towns that kind of surrounded it, though these were mostly Gentile towns. They were away from the crowds and the critics that they continually encountered in Galilee. Why were they doing this? Well, Jesus was trying to spend more time. He needed to get the disciples to a point, and we're going to see that here in a little bit, get them to a point in their understanding so that he could begin giving them more information that they needed to know of things coming up. So he was spending time with the 12 more, uh, more intentionally, more intensively. So as they were traveling along one of the roads, either uh, through one of the towns or heading up in that area, or at some area they stopped to rest, 
he begins this test of the disciples with this simple question. And he turns to them and asks, who do people say that I am? What, who do people think of who I am? Who do they think I am? They know how to answer this. There's no hesitation. We just says, Mark just records, and the disciples, so they answered. Perhaps different voices were calling out different answers. And all of the answers that Mark records here are also found back in chapter 6, verses 14 to 15, when we, when we took that look at Herod. And there was, there, was, there was talk about who Jesus was. These are the same answers. Who do people say that I am? John the Baptist. So whether John the Baptist or, or Elijah or one of the prophets. Now, people may have believed Jesus to be the resurrected John, as Herod Antipas thought, or a John-like person carrying on his message of repentance and the kingdom. So there is something, it's either John resurrected or someone a lot like John continuing the message of John. Elijah was a popular one. Others thought that Jesus was Elijah returned to herald the coming Messiah and kingdom. Why? Because God promised to send Elijah to Israel, as recorded in Malachi 4, 5, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. The Elijah person sent before Christ was John. Others say, or one of the prophets. Now, this may be the thought of a, a, another prophet like Elijah being resurrected, being returned to them, doing heralding, or just Jesus was in the, the same mold as the Old Testament prophets, especially of those that spoke of judgment or of the coming glory. And they just put Jesus in that mold. Now, Mark just gives us these three examples. But in the parallel passage of Matthew, Matthew 16, Matthew adds and says, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Matthew 16, 14, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Some thought Jesus was either Jeremiah resurrected or a prophet-like Jeremiah. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He too called the people to true repentance from the heart. He was misunderstood and rejected by the people. He condemned the false religious leaders and the hypocritical temple worship. Sound familiar? <laughs> now, there was thought because of some of the other extra-biblical writing, I'm going to mention one specifically here, concerning Jeremiah. According to 2 Maccabees, one of the extra-biblical books, Jeremiah hid the ark, the tabernacle, and the altar of incense in a cave on Mount Nebo, where Moses died after surveying the land before the people entered. 
there was common belief that Jeremiah would return and bring these things back to Israel before Messiah came. But in my study, even this belief was off based on the verse in 2 Maccabees because this verse mentions that God will reveal where these items are. Now, I bring this up. I've mentioned this. This is an extra biblical account. 2 Maccabees is part of the Apocrypha. It is not inspired or view or should be viewed as scripture. It is one of the intertestamental books that highlight certain Jewish beliefs that were common during the life of Christ and the apostles. So I only mention it because this adds a little context to what's going on. Why would they say, oh, Jeremiah? Well, according to 2 Maccabees, Jeremiah hid these articles and would bring them back before Messiah came. So there's still this thought out there. But this, their, their response here shows that whoever the people thought Jesus was, they were basically sure he was sent by God, that his mission, mission was from heaven, but they did not see him as Messiah. They did not really believe in him. The messianic expectation included that he be a military leader coming to overthrow the pagan occupiers, thus establishing an autonomous earthly kingdom of Israel where he would rule the world. Their view was off. They missed the mark. So after the, the disciples answer this simple question, he turns to them and gives them another one, a more difficult one. And in verse 29, he says to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And they strictly warned them that they should not tell any, that they should tell no one about him. So in verses 29 and 30, we see a critical question, a critical question, a question of great importance. He turns to them and says, who do you say that I am? He is making a distinct contrast between the disciples and the general public. We don't really see it in the English construction of this question, but this is in a very emphatic structure here in the Greek. A very rigid, straight translation would be this. But who do you yourselves say that I myself am? Okay, it doesn't work in the English. And actually in the structure, the, he uses the pronoun for you at the beginning of the sentence which puts a big emphatic stress on it. Who do you yourselves say that I myself am? He is, very, he is making a very emphatic question for them to put this together. He is putting the 12 on the spot, looking for a clear, definitive answer a declaration of who they believe 
he is. Because everything else he's about to show them and teach them in some of these following verses is kind of, this is a watershed moment in this question. Mark records Peter as the one responding. Peter responds seemingly quickly and seems to be acting as the spokesman for the group. All three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record that Peter is the one to speak this answer here. This is the first occurrence of Peter being recorded as the spokesman in Mark. And in any of the Gospels, there are only two other occurrences that would be earlier than this that are recorded in the Gospels, one in Luke and one in John, that seem to be in an earlier portion from this. But this is the first time Mark is, or Peter is brought out as the spokesman of the group in the book of Mark. And really, this is only the third time Peter is specifically named in Mark. By the name Peter, I should say. Two other times is in chapter 3, verse 16, and in chapter 5, verse 37. From here on, Peter is mentioned more frequently. And this is true in the rest of the Gospels. There is a major uptick in the occurrences of Peter being mentioned following this incident. In Matthew, he is mentioned by Peter five times before this incident, 18 after. Mark, two prior, 16 after. Luke, four before, 16 after. John, four and before, and 29 afterwards. Peter is becoming a, a more of a player in what Jesus is teaching and showing them here. Peter responds and says, you are the Christ. Again, the, the, the structure is very emphatic. It is just as emphatic as Jesus' question was. You yourself are the Christ. Again, he puts that pronoun you at the very beginning, putting a major stress and emphasis on it. And, and it, it's weird when I say it in English, you yourself, because the, the verb in Greek contains the pronoun. So there's no need to put the pronoun separately like we need to do in English. So to add that pronoun adds to the emphasis. You are the Christ. He is being very emphatic in this question, in this response. Also important in this passage is this is only the second time in Mark the term Christ has appeared. The only other time was in chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the only other time in the book of Mark at this till this point that the term Christ is used. Now, he's being emphatic. He's saying, you are the Christ. What are we talking about? Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew term from which we get Messiah. It means anointed one. 
This was the common term to use to refer to the coming son of David who would restore the kingdom of Israel. Now, even by this point, there had been other confessions of faith by the disciples. And it seems that most of the 12, 11 at least, had already truly believed in Jesus's messiahship before this point. What do I mean? Andrew, in going to get Peter in John 1, verse 41, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Nathaniel, upon meeting Jesus in John 1, 49, Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. The 12 following Jesus walking on the water, Matthew 14, verse 33. And those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. Peter, after many of the crowd left Jesus following the sermon about the bread of life in John 6, 6, 68 through 69 says, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There have been other confessions of faith from the disciples up to this point. But this confession was vitally important as the rest of the people were failing to truly understand who Jesus was and the open hostility from the Pharisees as well as others. For them to begin, for the disciples to begin to understand what he was about to teach them and to explain to them, especially concerning the cross, they needed to formally express their belief and adherence to him. Now, in the parallel passage in Matthew 16, more of Peter's statement is given. Matthew 16, verses 16 and 17, or at least verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. There, Peter's confession not only was only of Jesus' messianic office, but also of his supernatural character. Jesus' messiahship and deity was firmly established in the minds of the disciples, at least 11 of them. Mark doesn't record Jesus' response to Peter's confession. This is recorded in uh, Matthew 16, 17 to 19. I was this close to adding <laughs> that section and talking about it because there are important elements in there. Uh, talking about verse 18, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. Uh, verse 19, and you'll have, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. Just not where we needed to go. But I wanted to bring up verse 17. Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus responds and says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, 
but my Father who is in heaven. Matthew records Jesus' reply to Peter's confession. First, he calls him blessed and calls him Simon Bar-Jonah. This is simply his family name, Simon, son of Jonah. Some, may, some translations may say son of John. One source that I looked at says to, to emphasize his human inadequacy, Jesus called him by the family name, Simon, son of John, and then went in and called him Peter and, and went into further explanation. But he, but he brings out, maybe, and maybe I didn't give it, I just didn't like the way he worded, so I left, kind of left it out. But maybe there is more of a drive on his humanity here. Because then Jesus tells Peter how he came to this conclusion about Jesus. He says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. His human capacity is not enough to truly understand and make this kind of confession. The 12 didn't conclude Jesus' messiahship and deity because they understood the teaching through reason or witnessed the miracles and healings. They wouldn't, they weren't enough to convince, they wouldn't have been enough to convince them because they certainly didn't convince the people or the religious leaders. And why would that not have worked? Because in 1 Corinthians 2, Verse 14, Paul reminds the Corinthian believers here. He says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. <clears throat> the disciples wouldn't have been able to understand this based solely on human reason because it is, these things have to be spiritually discerned. It's not just through human reason and witnessing and understanding. The spirit has to play a part. We also see in 2 Corinthians 4, Second Corinthians 4 and verse 4, Paul reminds the Corinthians here, um, starting in verse 3, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. The God of this age, Satan, has blinded the unbelievers to not understand, to not see the glory of God, who is Christ, God incarnate. They wouldn't understand through reason. They were blinded to who Christ was because of their unbelief. So Jesus continues in his explanation to Peter, says, you didn't understand this by flesh and blood. You weren't revealed. This wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father who is in heaven. Jesus tells Peter the Father revealed the truth about Jesus to him. This was a gracious act of God. To help explain this, we see back in Matthew 11, verse 25, beginning in verse 25, he says, at this time, Jesus declared, 
I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. One source makes this comment coming off of this verse. From the gospel accounts, it seems clear that the Father disclosed the Son primarily through the Son himself. The Father revealed God the Son, revealed Christ through Christ's actions, through him himself. There is no record or indication that any divine revelation was given to the twelve during Jesus' earthly ministry, other than that given through Jesus himself. As the light of Jesus' teaching and the significance of his miraculous power began to dawn on them, the Spirit opened their minds, 2 Corinthians 4, to see him as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. They, we don't just recognize Jesus as the Christ, as Christ, without the Spirit working in our lives, without the Spirit taking the, the scales off of our eyes to see and recognize Christ. Jesus then gives the 12 a command not to share the truth about him with anybody. He says, do not tell anyone about, about me. The word there in, the, in verse 30, the words strictly warned. This is actually one word in the Greek, and this word has the meaning of re, rebuke or reprove. And it is translated that way 25 out of 29 times in the New Testament. We see here that the indication was that this was a prohibition. Don't do this. A prohibition to, that would receive a strong rebuke or censure if they violated it. So he's giving a very strict, a very strong prohibition to them. Don't. Do not tell anyone about this. Now, the charge was not to make, what was the charge? The charge was not to make the same confession about Jesus as they had just did, at least not yet. While they correctly saw him, they weren't ready to begin proclaiming him as Messiah just yet. They would just be raising false hopes of the people seeking an earthly Messiah for political and nationalistic hopes. They would be ready after the events of the cross, after the resurrection, after they received power through the Holy Spirit. So the disciples passed their test. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, writes the following. I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about 
Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. If we go back to that summary of world religions that we talked about at the beginning, most of them associated Jesus with a good, moral, or wise teacher. Jesus still asks this critical question, who do you say that I am? So who do you say that Jesus is? Is Jesus God's son who died on the cross for your sins? Romans 10, 9, 9 through 10, because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. From with, for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. If so, have you acknowledged your sins and turned in repentance to God? Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In, verse, in chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. I can go on. There's verses of repentance in Acts 3, 19, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, Isaiah 55, 7. Have you, who do you say that Christ is? Is he the Christ? Has he died on the cross for your sins? Is he just some teacher? I pray that you have accepted Christ as Savior. If there are some here who haven't, I pray that you would make that decision even this morning. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the truths that we have seen here, for the reminders that Jesus is not just some moral teacher, but that he is God the Son, the one and only unique Son of God who came to this earth in human form, who lived a perfect life, who died a horrific death as a, an atonement for the sins for the sins of the world. Father, I pray 
that many of us here this morning have already accepted Christ as Savior and that you have called us to you. I pray for those that may not have yet uh, acknowledged Christ as Savior. I pray that even through this message, that you would bring these truths back to their minds, that this would prick their heart, and that they would turn to you and accept Christ as Savior and Lord. We pray these things, Father, in his name. Amen.